0: Uh, On my left, a man who needs probably no introduction, Dr. Philip Nitschke. Dr. Nitschke, of course, is the face for euthanasia in Australia. On uh, Philip's left is Dr. Catherine Lennon. Uh, Dr. Lennon is a GP who has expertise in women's health, palliative care and geriatrics. And on her left is Al Stewart, a member of the City Bible Forum team who has been a minister, a pastor of churches for many years, and including serving as a bishop. Well, welcome uh, to the panel. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Especially, Philip, for coming from Darwin. Mm. Um, I might start by asking perhaps a few more personal questions to see how each of the three panellists have uh, come to this uh, discussion on euthanasia. So, Philip, you've had a very interesting career, starting out as a scientist then actually working as a uh, park ranger in Northern Territory before studying medicine in Sydney. It's not, a, I assume, a very traditional path to getting into euthanasia. So what led you to that?
1: Well, I don't know whether there is a traditional path for getting into the issue of euthanasia, but I did do medicine very late in life as a, as a geriatric student, I suppose. I came down from uh, Northern Territory to study here in Sydney. And so in some sense I had quite a world view and quite a lot of experience before I got into medicine. And I think that did change my... My attitudes, Because when I heard that there was to be legislation brought in in the Northern Territory, I'd only been working up there as a recently graduated doctor for a short time, but it just seemed to make sense to me and I was pleased that we we're seeing this issue addressed through a political in- innovation. Uh, and I was really upset by the opposition that was coming from the Australian Medical Association and also from elements within the church. And I got annoyed by the fact that the medical association was effectively saying that you, Territorians, might think you want such a law, but we know what's best for you. It's the paternalism of the medical profession that really upset me, and got and, you into—and I got into it really politically.
0: Right. Okay. Now, uh, Dr. Lennon, uh, you've worked in paediatric, um, sorry, in geriatrics and palliative care. So you're no stranger to the process of dying and ageing. Um, what led you into this field of work?
2: Well, I've been a GP now for almost 20 years and I've had a lot of patients who have been very successfully treated for depression and also for a range of illnesses. But when I worked in palliative care and geriatrics, it was very obvious that a lot of people who were suffering physically or emotionally, if they're given the proper pain relief and adequate treatment and we have had huge advances in palliative care that those people who might initially say, I want to die, um, in my experience, actually recover um, and, and say that they are feeling much better and that precious time of their life can be spent with their family and friends and and by caring staff who uh, really do respect their dignity. I think it's wrong to use the term dignity to mean a patient being killed. I so,
0: we, so would you say it was sort of your compassion... Uh, in a sense, that drove you to get into this area to see how we can care for people at that stage of their life?
2: I'm very passionate about caring for people and I've had very positive experiences in my own family. My father passed away from cancer a few years ago and we had home visits from the palliative care team. We had um, a lot of um, support from different people and just were able to spend very precious time with him and he had a very peaceful death. Uh, But he was not killed through euthanasia, and I don't want that to be legalised in Australia. It is on the agenda for a possible state law change and also, as we know, Bob Brown.
0: We will get on to that, of course. Now, Al, as a um, former church pastor and as a bishop, you obviously accompanied many people in the last stages of their life, probably conducted a few funerals. Um, Has that had any impact on you? How, How has that affected you? Being confronted with death,
3: uh, it's never easy. What I have seen is those last few days, uh, maybe week of someone's life, can be very significant for them and also very significant for families. And it's interesting to watch the dynamics of families as they gather, knowing that that someone they love is going to die. Um, a lot of things are reconciled. There's there's things kind of put right within families, and a funeral that's done in the right way. Um, can really help people with a kind of, sense of uh, closure as well. Uh, interestingly, the, there's a verse in the Bible that says, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. It's kind of a free translation, but a funeral than a party. Um, not that there's anything wrong with parties, but it says uh, the reason it's good to go to a funeral is that death is the destiny of everyone and the living should take it to heart. And so there's an element in a funeral where we stop and and we should consider that we'll all end up in the box one day and to think about our own mortality uh, is good for us.
0: Which raises the question of is there any value in in perhaps being confronted with death in the process of dying, which we'll see whether we can come back to that. But really, first, we need to address the substance of the issue. So I might turn to Philip. Um, How do you define euthanasia?
1: Look, I think euthanasia, the word itself simply means a good death. And uh, euthanasia has come to mean here, we're talking about voluntary euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia where a person desires a good death. They may be able to obtain it in various ways, but when they want help to take that process in the form of someone helping them to die, it's come to mean the voluntary euthanasia that I'll be talking about today, helping someone to end their life so that they can have the death at their time choosing. choosing. Okay. Would you agree with that definition?
2: I don't agree with that definition of euthanasia. The accurate definition is that euthanasia is an intentional act of killing the patient, either an act or an omission, which results in the patient's death. To say that euthanasia is a good death or a peaceful death is a really uh, a misnomer. And and as I mentioned, um, seeing my father, who suffered with cancer and who passed away, he had a very peaceful death. But it was not euthanasia, and and I think that um, we need to be very careful with the terms that we use.
0: Mm-hmm. So okay. all,
2: all all of us are going to die. It's it's not a right to die because um, in, in all of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and and the code in our law that that looks at people's rights, there's a right to life. Um, But there is not a right to be killed, and and I think that would be a more accurate way of describing uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide.
0: So, Philip, is it better that we're, for the sake of this discussion, narrowing the
1: definition to being assisted to die on your terms? Well, the the legislation that people look at is voluntary euthanasia. We're not talking about euthanasia, the general term, because that can mean everything from the Nazi Holocaust and the use of uh, processes there to eliminate certain groups in society right through to the compassionate processes we see nowadays in legislation in some countries around the world. So, no, voluntary euthanasia where a person asks for help to die in the context of serious suffering. Now, that's how we come to define it. That's the legislation that we're looking at. These are the models that are being looked at by various state governments around this country. Uh, and these are the pla- uh, this is the sort of legislation that has passed in a number of countries since the Northern Territory law 16 years ago became the world's first place where you could get lawful help to die. Okay. So let's perhaps at this point distinguish what euthanasia is not. So we've used the term
0: palliative care. I'd imagine amongst us as a lay audience here largely, we, we might be a bit confused about what is euthanasia, what is palliative care. So as a practitioner in this field... How would you
2: distinguish the two? So euthanasia, being the intentional killing of a patient by act or failure to act, basically is a, a situation where, if with euthanasia you you legalise it, you have to you also did distinguish involuntary euthanasia and voluntary euthanasia, and, I, and Philip Nitschke is on the record as supporting certain forms of involuntary euthanasia, which is a huge concern. But palliative care is very much about the best possible pain relief and emotional and spiritual and social support for that person towards the end of their life. And it's something that has improved to the point where an estimated 95 to 98% of people get substantial relief of most of their pain It is something we need to focus on improving for regional and rural areas in Australia, that that better access to palliative care. But already, now, more than ever before, people have a right to choose their treatment. So if, if, for example, a person decides not to have chemotherapy and their life may be shortened due to that, that's not euthanasia. If a person who has cancer says... I don't want treatment at intensive care, um, that is not euthanasia. And I think the other situation, if somebody is in pain and is, uh, they are given pain relief, um, such as morphine, which may have the unintended secondary effect of shortening their life, uh, that is not euthanasia. That okay. is good medical care All and right. good pain There's a
0: question here from the floor. I might turn to, to Philip. Is euthanasia an alternative to
1: those who cannot afford palliative care? Is it an economic question? Look, I think some people might see it as an economic question, but really what we're coming down to is saying, does, does a person have the right to say, thank you for the good palliative care, but now I want to go one step further, I want to put an end to my suffering, I want to die? Now, do we turn away from those people or don't we? Now, they may come for all sorts of reasons and maybe some of them are economic. I don't know, but are we going to respect their view or are we going to slam the door in their face? We're hearing about palliative care can alleviate symptoms, but we will not address the issue. Giving people the right to say, this is my life and I want to end it. The law respects that. Suicide's not a crime. But if anyone should help you, you'll spend a decade in Long Bay. So and that is, situation has to change. So is it worth
0: just clarifying that it's, so, it's therefore not so much a question of alleviating pain, because palliative care can do that. Is it what's driving your desire for euthanasia to be legalised more to enshrine the right
1: that an individual has to choose how and when they die? Sure, certainly that's my position. Now, legislative models have tended to focus on a certain group, and they are the terminally ill people, and giving them that option. But my own personal view my philosophical position myself is that people should have that option. What precious gift is life if you can't give it away at the time when you decide and we're being told we can't? Okay,
0: so it isn't so much an issue of suffering because palliative care... Mostly,
1: look, it often is, but it isn't always. There are exceptions. Sometimes it's other reasons. People come to my euthanasia clinics I hold all over Australia with all sorts of reasons for wanting to die. Mostly, they're in the context of a person with serious illness, but sometimes they come with unusual reasons and To come along and and try and impose on them my worldview, I think, is offensive. I respect a rational adult's decision to die and try to give them the help they need. Okay. Um,
0: There is a a question here about a a relative, a mother, who suffered depression and wanted to die and Mm. was able to get psychiatric help um, and chose not to exercise that. Mm. Is there the possibility that... uh, People with depression might be tempted to opt for euthanasia and
1: are we avoiding the possibility to treat the depression? Look, clearly that's a possibility and clearly a depression is an issue which we must take seriously. Now, it's a difficult issue and that's why when people have tried to look at legislation for this issue, they've tried to engage with the issue of depression. You have to be a person of sound mind. Now, people of sound mind make decisions about their future. Every time you have an operation in Australia, you've got to sign a form which gives consent. You've got to be of sound mind. Now, you're saying, well, if you've got depression, you mightn't be of sound mind and you shouldn't be agreeing to an operation or to a process which could lead to your death for euthanasia. That has to be excluded. Now, there are ways to do that rather than simply throwing up our arms and saying, oh, they're probably all depressed and no one should have this option. That, I think, is the tragedy and that's what's happened in this country, whereas other countries around the world have moved on. Australia is stuck in the Dark Ages We briefly had the world's first legislation. Since that time, we just sit here in Australia and watch the rest of the world engage with this issue and bring about civilising legislation. So, um, Dr
0: Lennon, is there a risk that uh, some with depression, though, um, might not seek or be given the help they need and opt for euthanasia?
2: Yes, well, it's certainly considered good medical practice. Um, if somebody says, I want to die, they're having suicidal ideation, to give that person as a a medical emergency, in a sense, um, all the help and support they can, because most of those patients are depressed, and depression is treatable. There are some wonderful resources, um, particularly uh, things like Living is for Everyone, Of government-sponsored initiative, and also Beyond Blue, which make a lot of really good suggestions and provide help so that people who are feeling down, and we all go through ups and downs, but people who are feeling down can access help and treatment, can get support from family and friends. Some people respond to medication. But when you look at the list of the suicide prevention um, suggestions, Dr. Nitschke almost does the exact opposite. So he says to people who are considering suicide to isolate themselves. He, he gives them very specific instructions on different types of poison barbiturates or plastic bags to use. I, everything in the good code of medical practice, um, Dr. Nitschke is... Um, Pretty much doing the opposite, and and I would say, and that is probably one of the reasons that he's being investigated by the medical board at the moment. We must um, pause be- at that moment. Yes, so, because so, because uh, all all doctors need to have certain code of ethics and respect um, the life of that patient. Right.
0: So, uh, Philip, can you respond to? the question of uh, what you're prescribing on your website. And well, I'm I a, bit, a bit
1: mystified by this idea of telling people to isolate themselves. I don't understand that at all. What we do do is to make sure that people, when they've decided to take this course, know what it is they're about to do. You've got laws in this land which say suicide is not a crime, but anyone who helps you is going to spend a long time in prison. So people won't help, so people are stuck with no access to good information. People become more desperate, they want to die, they can't get help, they can't get information. Desperate people do desperate things. The commonest means that people use to die, elderly people, often in the context of serious sickness, is by hanging themselves. Now that's what's happening right now in Sydney. Now, we can do better than that by giving good information out there. If people are going to take this course, at least give them the means, give them the information. Allow them to make valid choices and that's what we set out to do. And you're saying you shouldn't do that. Keep people in the dark. They'll just sit there and smile and smile and smile and live long and happy lives. Keep people totally deprived of information and they'll live long and happy lives. It's rubbish. You empower people by giving information. And that's exactly what we've tried to do. And, of course, as soon as we did that, they've banned my book. They've done everything else to make sure that people are kept in the dark. That's the government's approach to this issue. Keep people in the dark and keep them deprived of information so they smile and live happy lives. I, I can imagine that um, perhaps one of the
0: arguments might be that... Um by providing the information, in a sense, there's the risk of mm-hmm. the the floodgates being opened. Yes, there is a question here that, and you've referenced this in your earlier comments about other jurisdictions yes. where this has been legalised. Is there any evidence and? Uh, in from the question here, that where it has been legalised, Holland, Belgium, I think, yes. that there has been a little bit of a slippery slope in terms of who is eligible
1: for euthanasia? Look, there's certainly been a slope. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a downward one. I mean, what happens when you bring in legislation is that people have a chance to look at it and to revise it, and it's been revised in Holland, it's been revised in Oregon and Montana and also in Washington and in Luxembourg, Belgium and in Switzerland. These are the countries around the world which have tackled this issue and they're changing as their populations want the act, want the legislation to change and I think we should respect the views of example, those people. Can you give examples? Of In counsel. the case of uh, the Dutch, they altered the age at which a person could access this legislation. So a person can be terminally ill at the age of 18, can be terminally ill at the age of 16. We shouldn't simply say, I'm sorry, you don't become eligible until you become a cert- come to a certain date. They've recognised there are certain forms of illness where you can be suffering and at the same time, be able to give consent and take this course. There's a lot of changes about this legislation, but the idea that people are being put down in droves in Holland without their consent, which I'm sure you'll hear people say, is actually rubbish, and the Dutch are quite offended by this. In the recent Senate candidate uh, conflict that's going on in America, present we had one of the candidates say that, and the Dutch were appalled. Come to Holland, they said, and we should all go to Holland. When you listen to some people speaking about it, you'd be fearful to get off the plane. You think you stepped on the ground, you'd be put down. Holland is a wonderful country because it's had the guts to take on this issue, whereas we just sit there and say, oh, we can't tackle this, it's too difficult.
0: So, uh, Dr Lennon, what's your knowledge of the experience in countries such as Holland?
2: Well, in, in the 30 years where euthanasia has been widely practised in Holland, they have moved this through this slippery slope where it was started off initially of euthanasia of people who are terminally ill... It then progressed legally to allow euthanasia of people who are chronically ill, and they've also made changes so that people, not just with physical illness, but people with mental illness and psychological distress um, are eligible for euthanasia in Holland, and they're currently considering people who are just tired of life. They're debating whether they should be eligible. They allow suicide uh, assisted by... Uh, Doctors now, they've started mobile clinics where they're driving around through the streets um, and particularly um, giving um, techniques, uh, 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 giving people the ability to um, commit suicide or euthanasia. And in the Groningen Protocol, they are also practising euthanasia in Holland on disabled babies. So it, it really is promoting not just voluntary euthanasia, but involuntary euthanasia. And in all in all of the countries in the world where they've legalized euthanasia, involuntary euthanasia, in other words, without explicit request or consent by the patient, is practiced. Um, some of the statistics from the Dutch government, uh, through the Remlink report and also published in the New England Journal of Medicine 2007, over 50% of Dutch physicians admitted to practising euthanasia, most often on cancer patients, but only 60% kept written records of their euthanasia practice and only 29% filled out death certificates accurately. Now, this is a problem. I think in Britain they are considering whether they should alter laws on physician-assisted suicide They had a doctor there who who had a philosophy that the elderly were a drain on society. He made comments about the elderly being uh, a drain on society and that was Dr Harold Chipman and that GP over a period of 24 years killed over 216 patients. He's the worst serial killer in Britain. We have to be extremely careful and cautious about preserving laws that protect patients
1: well, it didn't do just, very good and and, and that protect
2: job, did well he I was caught just, and he he was he was in prison but if you legalize euthanasia there will be many many cases and many innocent people who will be to involuntary happen, who it? will be involuntary euthanized and all I might, of the, I might
0: just Cathy, at this point say yes. that uh, it's interesting your description of um, the legislation in Holland and how it's been loosened. Um, to what extent, Philip, do you think that reflects perhaps, and, and that's been over a period of time, yeah. to what extent does that reflect perhaps your own personal journey in thinking yeah, I about think this?
1: It, I, well, I think it's a, it reflects my views too. I think it's been quite, they've been quite uh, uh, reflective and uh, appropriate loosening of the legislation with time. I mean, the Dutch can vote that law out at any time. It's a democracy. Some would say it's a better democracy than the one we've got here in Australia. They can vote out that legislation and they don't. The people like that legislation and they get a bit upset by people in other countries looking at it and saying, oh, now you're putting down the babies. Well, fair go. Have a close look at Holland and before you start throwing the stones at their glass door. What I'm thinking is that there is a need to have legislation brought in and to watch it closely. And there will be a need to evolve, will be a need to change. Sometimes legislation has to be altered. But don't just sit here and say we can't have laws like this. The dangers are too great, and that's what we've done in Australia.
0: I guess it's interesting that we can sit here on this side of the world and observe um, what's happening over there. So I might turn to you at this point, Al. In a way, um, there's two quite different visions of society happening here. Uh, In a sense, it's asking the question for Australia, for us to think what type of society we want. Uh, Would you like to sort of comment on that?
3: I I think in some ways it's a uh, trajectory kind of decision, and that different world views will take you in in different directions. Um, we've just had the uh, global atheist convention uh, in Melbourne a week a couple of weeks ago. Um, now I'm not saying that atheists are evil. Uh, you know particularly you know, partic- you know particularly evil or whatever or that you can't be you know good friendly atheist etc. But atheism when you pull the plug on God what are you left with? Well, let me quote the spokesman for The New Atheist, which is Richard Dawkins, who's got a good turn of phrase. Uh, Dr Dawkins says, uh, what we see in the world is no good, no evil, no meaning, no purpose, just blind, pitiless indifference. And so the value that we put... One of the consequences of that, the value that we put on human beings and what gives life value and so on is arbitrary. It's whatever you choose or don't choose. And so we might choose some kind of utilitarian view of life, the amount of pleasure you have or how aware you are or whatever it is, and we may decide that a disabled baby is not worth saving because they're not going to enjoy the quality of life, and so we put them down. But it's like playing tennis without a baseline, and all we're left with is uh, opinions. Uh, And I think a lot of the atheists that we do within this country are Christian atheists, And that is, they're still operating on the Judeo-Christian court that had right and wrong and the value of human life. Where can it end up? I just read a book by Niall Ferguson called uh, Civilisation, The the West and the Rest. In the last chapter, if you want to look it up, he says there are three provinces in China today that have massive discrepancy between the number of young men and the number of young women, like 30 to 38% more young men. How can that happen? It doesn't happen naturally. Why has it happened? In 1979 the single child policy was introduced, one child per family, and babies have been killed, aborted, why? Because they were girls. It, it just becomes arbitrary as to which life is so, worth living and so on.
0: So what's the alternative? What, what's the vision of society you would prefer?
3: Well, our laws uh, in this country, um, and I understand it can be frustrating to have a different worldview, but our laws have been based on the Judeo-Christian worldview, that human life is precious, uh, inherently precious, and that we need particularly to defend the vulnerable and defenceless. And when are we most likely to be vulnerable and defenceless is at the very beginning of our life and the very end of our life. And there is a cost. We are people in relationship. We are society. There is a cost to actually defending that and those relationships, and that is we may not get to exercise the autonomy that we individually want. It happens to me in all sorts of ways. I can't drive my V8 Commodore at the speed I want, I can't own the firearms that I want to own, and I can't take the recreational drugs that I'd like to take. Now, I know they're trivial examples, but in all of those, things that I would like to do, I put underneath the good of the rest of society. So,
0: in a sense, you've raised there's a there's a tension here between uh, what Philip has advocated for a personal right, a freedom, an autonomy to decide, in this case, uh, how I should die, mm. uh, versus perhaps the argument that uh, we as a society need to protect the interests of those most vulnerable be at the early or late stages of life. Uh, there is a question even here, Um, Is there a risk in all this that those who might perceive themselves to be a burden on society would opt for euthanasia so that uh, they can relieve the burden that they're presenting? Uh, So, Philip, how do you respond to this tension between my right as an individual and the need to look after those who perhaps don't have a
1: voice? Yeah, look, I'm a bit taken aback. I mean, I'm a good, friendly atheist, uh, and I uh, don't... And I don't think I'm uh, my beliefs in right and wrong are rooted in some uh, primeval Christian ethic. I think I've got a reason and understanding about what's right and wrong. And I really lost the step how suddenly we flew to China and there we see the one-child policy somehow or rather linked to the fact that, again, when we becomes a godless society, suddenly we start to see these sorts of things. You can indeed be godless and at the same time have a very clear idea, as many of my atheist colleagues do, about what is right and wrong. Now, defending the vulnerable? Come on, by respecting life, you defend people, you respect people by listening to them. Now, if you're going to say to the vulnerable person who says, please help me die, sorry, I don't do that. That's not defending the vulnerable. That's ignoring the vulnerable. Taking notice of people is defending them and respecting them.
0: Now That's a very valid point, but I, I think the issue that's been raised and also has come through now some of the questions is um, the issue that raised in Holland of perhaps so-called involuntary euthanasia. Um, is there a risk in opening the door legally that there be cases where people
1: are euthanised who ordinarily would not be? So the, the, the option will be seen as an obligation, that they will start to feel they have to do the right thing. Possibly that, perhaps even tied up with economic reasons, uh, perhaps even through you know, insurance or whatever the case may be. Like, look, how can you be sure that that won't happen? What I'm simply saying now, of course it could happen. But I still think that it's necessary to at least bring in a framework where we can recognise the fact that people who do have this clear desire have their choice respected. We need to watch for that. We need careful legislation that makes sure that that doesn't happen. If you say you simply can't do it... Other countries can do it. We can do it. And say we can't do it, and just sit here with what we have in this society is an unjust, inequitable system where those that are so sick and disabled that they can't end their lives and beg someone to help them have that person sitting in a courtroom with a jury deciding how they're going to spend the next 10 years. We've just been through one in Queensland. We're about to have another. People do help those they love to die, and they need to be. That needs to be acknowledged by the law and some path provided for them so that they don't suffer such savage legal consequences.
0: Yes, although I think, as you've said, it's not just about the sick and ill. Well, it's oh, it's also my position, but that's where these things anyone. keep coming yeah. up. Yeah, OK. Um, so, Catherine, in your perspective, are there other arguments that you feel need to be raised as to why you are against euthanasia?
2: Well, I think the whole concept of Dr. Nitschke and his organisation promoting suicide and, and basically trying to provide step-by-step guides, which he has tried to breach Australian law and provided links through the internet um, to, to books that have been banned. They they are very dangerous, and uh, when they looked... Um, this was published in the Age newspaper. When they looked at some of the things that he was promoting, like Nembutol in the last 10 years, two-thirds of the people who accessed that and used that to commit suicide were under 60, and there were quite a few in their 20s and 30s. So this suggests that people with mental illness or depression, rather than unbearable pain, people with mental illness are actually trying to commit suicide, and Dr Nitschke is on the public record as saying that people 18... And over, and also a month ago, he was talking about babies with disabilities, agreeing that they should be euthanised. And I think that is totally the wrong approach. We need a society that cares for the most vulnerable people. We need laws in place that respect the life of each and every individual and respect their rights.
0: What what about the argument that Philip has quite powerfully put forward? That uh, what about the person though who wants to be able to end their life um, through euthanasia? What about their rights?
2: Look, I I think the impression that you get hearing euthanasia advocates is that they want to empower people and give choice. Each of us, every day, have choices, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat for breakfast, but the way that suicide and euthanasia take away that person's life, it, it takes away all their choices. It takes away all of their power. There's nothing more disempowering than killing somebody. So I think this whole misuse of words like respect and dignity is trying to cover up a hidden agenda, which basically that those words, in the way that Dr Nitschke is using them, really mean to kill people. So when he talks about dying with dignity, that word and the renaming of the Voluntary Euthanasia Society to Dying with Dignity, those words are now being used to mean the right to be killed. Let me, uh, let, uh, let me give uh, Philip
0: a brief opportunity to respond to that because we, time is coming out, and I'd like to include one or two last questions. So, Philip, how would you respond to
1: that claim? Which particular claim? Uh, well, the idea that it's not dying with dignity, really, but okay, it's about. Okay, I've, look, I've said it. I'll say it again. You respect the person, you give them dignity by listening to them. You give them information. You don't keep them in the dark. You say, oh, I'm the government and you can't have that information. You can't know that because that might you might misuse the information. When you respect people, you give them information. And when they're suffering and when they can't take this step themselves and they beg you for that step, that help to end their suffering, you provide them with that assistance. You don't turn away from people. That's respect. That's dignity. The people who simply say you can't do that, they're the cruel ones. Okay,
0: so we're going to have to move on. Uh, We've only got a few minutes left. There are still a couple of questions coming in. One, for instance, Dr Nijka, can you guarantee that um, unequivocally that there wouldn't be
1: one person killed without their consent uh, if we went down this path? Of course you can't. And look, there may well be one person who, without their consent, has their lives ended if we brought in legislation, but that has to be balanced by the fact that there's a large number of people out there in desperate straits who are taking the most obscene methods to end their life now and not getting any assistance. So you try to work out the best path through society. It could happen, but let's reconcile the fact that most people will get access to a humane and compassionate death that they crave. You're shaking your head there, Dr. No, I think,
2: I think Dr. Nitschke is promoting desperate, vulnerable people to do desperate things because... Promoting um, information about suicide um, has a tragic outcome. We don't want more suicides um, in our society. Um, I think the family of Erin Berg, the woman from Perth, is still waiting for an apology from Dr. Nitschke. Um, The the sisters of Erin Berg, um, Christine, Stephanie and Sally Doyle, um, were interviewed um, on the ABC and were describing how their sister, who was 39 years old, who had four children, and after the birth of her fourth baby, she developed postnatal depression, rather than tell her former husband or family precisely what her plans were, she actually had read um, Dr. Nitschke's book, Killing Me Softly, and made a trip to Mexico where she obtained... The lethal barbiturate Nembutal. After Erin took that um, lethal dose of Nembutal, she actually went through a lot of pain and suffering. She didn't die um, until ten days later, after a lot of severe treatment in intensive care, and her family went over to try and help her and support her. And so, and 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 I, and I just wanted to say what her family is saying that. When they were talking about Aaron's situation, and this is quoting the family, that um, any image of Aaron, either alive in a coma or dead, should stand as a damning indictment of the dangers of your suicide information. And so I guess the
0: question really then is: Is there a risk, Philip, that by promoting this information, as you say, the 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 in your line of logic is we need to make this information available to yeah. stop the hanging in the kitchens or whatever. Yeah. Is there a
1: risk in providing the information that people will misuse it? Look, there's always a risk in giving people information that some people will misuse it, but that's not a reason for censorship. Now, the point is I have to go back. We're talking about Ehrenberg and people here won't really know, but I would make one point. This psychiatric patient from Western Australia went to the bookshop and bought a book called Killing Me Softly, which I wrote. It's a book published, it's a book published by uh, Penguin. In Australia. You can go and buy it today. There's a sentence in it that says some people go to Mexico to get end of life drugs. Should it be banned for that? No one else thinks so, but you clearly do. And the fact was that she read that book and decided to slip the net. She was under restraint from the psychiatric services. She got out of the institution. She got on a plane. She went to Mexico. And we don't know what she did. You're claiming she took the drug. We don't know that. There was no analysis done of her body and of the blood when she was found. They don't know what drugs she took. They found a bottle and they found other drugs too. The fact was that we don't know what she took. And the fact is that she died eventually in the Tijuana-based hospital. Now, the point about it is, what are you suggesting I do? Not even put the fact that some people go to Mexico to get drugs to end of life. That's a a sentence that shouldn't be in a book. The fact is, are we talking about that sort of extreme censorship? People know that drugs will end their lives if they know which drugs, and that was the sentence which caused the trouble. Her family are upset, of course. Of course they'd be upset. She's a psychiatric patient, and she went overseas to die, but I don't see I'm responsible. When she contacted me, I said, I can't tell you there's nothing exit has to offer you. I told her that. I'm
0: I'm going to have to draw a line in this conversation now as we approach the end, and there will just be the last opportunity for each of our panellists to speak. Um, Al, as I turn to you for your last um, opportunity... Um, what does this discussion perhaps raise with the question of hope? Is this discussion indicating that perhaps we've lost hope if we go down this path?
3: Uh, in the end, if you have a world view that pulls the plug on God, in the cold, hard light of day, there is no hope. And so we live in a society that I think that more and more lives on the basis of hedonism and denial, So we watch The Voice, we live in Groundhog Day, we don't think about what's coming and we're not prepared to face death and we're not really prepared, I I mean we're not prepared to face our own mortality. Now I'm a Christian and I think I have good evidence for what I believe and the biggest thing that you see at a funeral, at a Christian funeral, is that people live and die with hope and hope changes everything.
2: So I would just just summarise by saying we don't want euthanasia or assisted suicide legalised in Australia because in every country where they have legalised euthanasia, it it ends up that um, involuntary euthanasia is practised. The Dutch government go through meticulously and record statistics and each year... They have a a group, um, it's usually in the hundreds, 400, 550 if you look at at the last 10 years, of people whose lives have been ended without their consent or request, involuntary euthanasia. Uh, When you look at the hidden agenda behind euthanasia advocates like Dr. Nitschke, they actually support involuntary euthanasia and people who not just have physical suffering but mental suffering or or children. And I think we don't want to go down that road of introducing euthanasia where it is extremely difficult, almost impossible, to, to have adequate safeguards. More importantly, we want a society where every person is respected and cared for and supported and those people who are the most vulnerable in our community... Those who are ill or depressed need our help and support. They need better palliative care and support services for suicide prevention.
1: Thank you.
0: Doctor. We don't. We don't want our yeah. medical
2: schools teaching doctors how to kill patients.
1: Okay. So Philip, uh, final word. Oh, look, I'm a bit intrigued by this idea of pulling the plug on God. Somehow, other means that we're going to have a, a world where we can't look at an issue like voluntary euthanasia legislation. I mean, the divide is much bigger than that. Mo- the, the, In Australia, most people want the laws changed. Now, it's not a simple divide between people who see themselves as believing and not believing. And it's a funny kind of nexus that you've drawn here. People can be strong believers and have strong faith. And still believe that you should have the option in certain circumstances of being able to say, I've had enough and now I want access to a peaceful death and I might need help to take that course. And I think that needs to be respected. Again, I've said it three times. I'll say it one last final time. You respect people by listening to them. You respect people by accessing, providing for them the respect that it should be accorded to a person who makes a sound decision to end their life and giving them that option. Slamming doors in elderly people's face who are dying, forcing their sons and daughters to break laws that can lead to a decade in prison is not a way for a healthy society to function. We can do better, we should do better, and sooner or later we will do better. The world is changing, you're on the losing side on this one, and sooner or later we're going to see the world move on and Australia is just going to get itself finally out of the dark ages.
0: All right. Um, Well, on that definition, you've shown a lot of respect because you've been listening very well. So um, congratulations to you for sitting there and please thank our panel. Uh, The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.